Hello, and welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. Uh, as usual, this is Joe Schumacher coming at you from the podcast headquarters, which is now a, uh, it's like a bunker living room. It's like very cozy lighting and tables and chairs and lamps and uh, no windows, but um, it beats the conference room we used to be in. Um, joining us for the first time today is a new co-host on Neurotransmissions, Anant Jain, who is a postdoc in Riohei Suda's lab. Uh, Anant, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe, for having me here. Yeah, and um, I'm really glad uh, to have you here. Uh, your your area of expertise dovetails really well with the topic we have today. We have a really great uh, guest who studies some really fascinating stuff in the world of of dopamine, um, and I need your help. So <laughs> it's it's good to have you here. Um, so just uh, for the audience, what um, what's your background? Where, what did you study for your PhD? What are you working on now? Mm-hmm. All right. So um, for my PhD, uh, I did my PhD in Catherine Woolley's lab at Northwestern University. And there I studied latent sex difference underlying acute estradiol modulation in the hippocampus. So this is all like fancy terms. But basically, I really understood, tried to understand the acute effects of estrogens um, in this brain region called hippocampus that's important for learning, memory formation, and spatial navigation. Now, when we think of estrogens, we think of them as sex hormones, something that's released from the gonads. But our lab found that estrogens can actually be locally and acutely synthesized in this brain region called Mm -hmm. hippocampus and act as a neuromodulator, very similarly in both males and females. So I investigated the acute effects um, uh, on these glutamatergic or excitatory synapses um, in the hippocampus and found that estradiol can acutely potentiate or increase the synaptic strength um, uh, uh, in both males and females uh, of these uh, excitatory synapses. However, when I started investigating the molecular mechanisms or some things that uh, are the protein functions that underlie these uh, mechanisms, I found that uh, I found sex difference. I found that some of these protein functions in estrogen receptors are differentially required in both males and females. And that's Mm. why the term latent sex difference, which means although the overall effect of estrogen is very similar between sexes, the underlying mechanism is different. Okay, that's cool. Um, And what's funny, so you did your PhD with Catherine Woolley. I did my PhD with her sister, Sarah Woolley, (laughs) in a hugely sexually dimorphic species called a zebra finch, where we only studied males because they sang, the females didn't sing, um, I, I'm hoping that sex differences in model organisms will be um, something we talk about today. Um, but um, let's introduce our guest. So um, our our guest today is uh, an award-winning research scientist, educator, uh, and advocate. Um, Dr. Erin Calipari is a assistant professor at Vanderbilt University. She's also the associate director for the Vanderbilt Center of Addiction Research. Uh, and she uh, is in the departments of pharmacology, molecular physiology and biophysics, and psychiatry and behavioral sciences, if I got that correct. Yes. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much (laughs) for joining us. Thank you. Um, So your research uh, has centered from graduate school up till now uh, on the dopamine system in in various contexts, uh, the neural basis of decision-making, how different types of cells um, are involved uh, in this system. My question is somebody coming completely outside of this, as so often is the case on this podcast, is, you know, dopamine is something that is ubiquitous in the animal world. Um, evolutionarily, if we think about like a cross-axis, broadly speaking, 
why is it so important? What are some of the functions, historically speaking, that we've associated with dopamine? And um, in the wild, why do we need a dopamine system? Yeah, so I think the dopamine system is my favorite neurotransmitter system. Um, it's, it's actually a really interesting system because I think when you hear about it in the popular press, people always talk about it as the reward molecule. So most people think of dopamine and they think reward. And I think that's partially true. Um, drugs of abuse, they increase dopamine. This is critical for their addictive potential. It's critical for this kind of the, the, the fact that we want to take them again and again. Um, dopamine's also involved and necessary for feeding behaviors, for sexual behaviors. And so you have dopamine release from these dopamine cells being involved in all of these reward-related behaviors. So I think, you know, the idea was dopamine is reward. Um, it's obviously more complicated than that. So dopamine is also involved in stress responses. It's involved in responding to threats. It's dysregulated in um, anxiety disorders, depression. And so, you know, in my lab, we kind of took a step back and said, okay, if dopamine is reward, why is it also involved in all of these behaviors associated with aversive experiences, things that are bad? And so what we've kind of found, what we have found, is that what dopamine does is it responds to anything in your environment that's important. So the reason it's so important is because it tells us when something is important. And important, should we pay attention to this, right? Good things, we should pay attention to them. Bad things, we should pay attention to them. The behavior that we do in response to those may be wildly different, but what dopamine does is it helps us figure out in our environment what's important and do we need to change what we are doing to result in something that's better, whether that be avoiding something bad or seeking out something good. Dopamine is involved in all those cases because it basically just signals is something important or what we call it salience. So uh, you mentioned um, drug addiction and and drug use and drug seeking behavior and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, in you know before there were humans and reptiles roamed the earth with um, dopamine. You said there's all these intrinsically like vital behaviors that are dependent on dopamine. So now we live in a society where we have molecules that we've developed or cultivated that directly exploit that circuitry that's why we have like drug addiction is that essentially the idea oh you're gonna get me so excited we get to talk about the evolutionary basis of addiction yes. <laughs> right um addiction is really interesting so people always say well why what what's going on there so one of the things that was really important for the evolution of species so from tree dwelling primates to primates that could could live on the ground is the ability to metabolize fermented foods fermented fruits that fall from the trees. And so a byproduct of eating fermented uh, fermented foods is your ability to metabolize alcohols. Mm -hmm. And that happens to also coincide with getting drunk because the metabolism leads to these kind of altered states. And so the ability of us to evolve as society, as a society of hunter-gatherers and people who can actually farm and things like that and preserve food through fermentation is the ability of humans to metabolize the byproducts of fermentation, which is the production of alcohol. And so there's this really important aspect of our development of a species that requires us to be able to metabolize these, these drugs. And then people love altering their state of being. It's actually something that um, happens. Children, they spin around really fast to try them. My kid themselves. loves to get dizzy. Yeah. 
And I've always been like, oh my God, he's going to be a pothead when he's in high school. He'll, just, he'll do <laughs> I anything. I don't know if it's that that certain, but um, <laughs> but no, exactly. Human beings like to experience interesting things that, that change our state of being. And actually, humans are kind of interesting in primates in that way. There's lots of drugs that rodents will not consume that humans will, especially psychedelic drugs, um, things like LSD. The rodents don't love to do that. When you start to get into other drugs like cocaine, stimulants, Rodents will love to take it. So in, in my lab, we have uh, animals. What they do is we give them a button and they can push it to take drug themselves. And so we kind of look at behavior, how this evolves, what systems control the motivation to take drug. Are they the same as the ones that control our motivation for other things? Where are they different? How does that drug exposure change how those systems are wired to drive our decisions? And so there's so much cool research in this area that's spans fundamental how do drugs work up to how do drugs influence how we navigate an environment. It's, it's very interesting. I, I'm actually curious now um, that you mentioned it, how uh, uh, this um, addiction is such a conserved thing. Um, I'm wondering if the mechanism of dopamine is also con conserved across species and how, yes. how lower order does it go? Like um, uh, um, do uh, Fishes worms, or worms have, have dopaminergic systems as well. It's okay. like one. I mean, because they're they, you know these more these simple systems. They also have dopamine neurons. Flies have dopamine neurons, and they're, they have similar mechanisms mm -hmm. as well. So they, they have similar mechanisms. Um, so some of my grad work actually back in the day, I was doing um, dopamine recordings in mice, rats, and primates. And there's a large conservation of dopamine circuits across those species. The crazy thing about limbic structures, those deeper brain structures, is they're highly conserved. When you start to get into things like cortex, these kind of cognitive centers, those tend to be a little bit more complex the bigger your species gets. But when you're talking about the dopamine system, it's basically just like the little motivational drive in our brain that's conserved all the way down to worms. So like from a career standpoint, I mean, you mentioned um, your your graduate work. What was the hook for you with like dopamine and dopamine <laughs> transporter and stuff like that? You like, fell in love with dopamine. Yeah. I, you, it's funny. I, I, don't, I was so actually it's a weird story. Um, the other half of my lab actually studies hormonal regulation of dopamine systems. This is like my bread and butter is, is dopamine and, and sex differences in dopamine. Um, when I was an undergrad, I took this class, this behavioral neuroendocrinology class. And I learned about hormones. Hormones are so cool. They, they, they bind to a receptor and they transmit a signal from the outside of a cell inside through all these cool signaling molecules. And I just thought that was so neat. And I went, I wanted to be in a hormone lab and I actually had replied to some as an undergrad and they were full. And then I ended up working in an addiction lab. And what was really interesting is drugs and hormones kind of do the same thing, right? Drugs act on a receptor and they cause a signal. And a lot of times drugs are acting on the same receptors that these endogenous signals act on. So a good example is nicotine, right? In our body, we have what's called acetylcholine. This acts on nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Well, nicotine exogenously, you smoke it, it activates those same receptors. So to me, it was really cool to see something that you could consume that was regulating these systems that had some very precise function. And then once I started working on that, you start to see this bigger picture of the problem and how drugs are affecting people. So I think for me, I just, the basic science of how do drugs work and what are they doing and how are they affecting the brain is cool. You did your postdoc in Eric Nestler's lab. I did do it's that. A, it's a 
big lab any fun or interesting experience from that lab or how was the experience working there yeah so 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 okay so i'll start back in my other labs and explain the differences so when i i started in undergrad i was in a really small lab there was like one grad student and a couple undergrads and so it was a really small lab and we kind of worked on things together and i really liked that from a lot of perspectives because it was kind of like you know only a few people we were really really well integrated my graduate lab was an analytical chemistry lab it had about 11 people in it so it was on the bigger side but not too big so it was still smaller and then my postdoc lab at mount sinai was about 20 people i think there were 14 postdocs and then some other people so it was quite a large lab um you know, all those kind of different lab sizes give you a different experience, right? The bigger the lab, the less hands-on mentorship you're going to get from, you know, the lab head because they just, they can't be there every day of your life. But, you know, for me as a postdoc, I had already had a PhD and it was like a kind of fun way to come up with ideas and run a lab on training wheels, right? Like there was funding, there were resources in the lab, there was established techniques, but I kind of had the freedom to play around with ex experiments, see what worked, see what was cool, see what I was most excited about. And I think my postdoc papers, you know, I have several of them and some of them were good exercises and what I don't want to do in the future. Not that I didn't hmm. love what I was working on, not that I think they weren't important discoveries, but I kind of got to the end and it was felt like pulling teeth to do some of these studies. I'm excited other people do them, but I just didn't like yeah. that kind of experiment where there were other things like the psychology, decision-making, sex differences that got me so excited that I just wanted to think about what was next, what do I do next? And the thought of doing more experiments in that space was so exciting to me. And so like the space to kind of try out different things and still see them to completion, but say, I did that. I will not be doing that again. I think it was a really important part of when I started my lab to say, what space do I want to be in and what space brings me the most joy and where am I most equipped to mentor others? And I think that having a, being in a bigger size lab, you have more space to talk to your, your neighbors, you talk to the people in the lab and say, what do you think? Mm -hmm. What are you excited about? How does this fit into your framework and develop your own ideas? Where in a smaller lab, it's kind of like there's three of you and you're doing yeah. everything together. But I, all those experiences were so important in shaping the lab I have now. And so it was fun. I know it's all fun. I love science, so I could do it anywhere. You mentioned that um, uh, you know half of your lab is studying hormonal regulation of um, dopamine. And I, I guess I think around your postdoc is when you started working more uh, focused on sex differences in dopamine system. What got you interested in that topic and what was your approach for uh, and, and what specifically were you asking about vis-a-vis yeah. -vis sex differences? Yeah, so I've always been interested in hormonal regulation of right. neural circuits. I, I think that even from undergrad, it was something I was really excited about. Um, and then, you know, the NIH had a push, which we can discuss whether that's it was the best or, or it, basically what they said is you have to include males and females in your work, which I think at some point is actually really great because essentially um, – there are these like really interesting stats. So, you know, 50% of the population, they're women. But if you actually look back the last 10 years, there were like 10 drugs pulled from the market by the FDA. Eight of the 10 were because of adverse health events in women. Hmm. And when you start to look at the biomedical research history, you look over the last 100 years and like 30% of studies even included both. And then only 5% of those even were designed to look at by sex. 
So you essentially have this huge biomedical research enterprise that has done a majority of what, and not all work, right? Like you're talking about Catherine Bully, you're talking about, pe there's people who've been doing this for a long time, Marilyn Carroll, Wendy Lynch in the addiction field, um, Kathy Gray has done a lot of this stuff in primates with uh, alcohol drinking. There's people who've been studying this, but they're a small percentage of the overall research enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so when the NIH came out and said, we need to include them both, I, I have a really hard time including both sexes and not actually looking at whether there are sex differences or not. So. Right. We started looking at cocaine effects and we found really robust differences in cocaine responses. We looked at differences in how animals learned about it. We were looking at the dopamine system and how that could underlie that. And actually we were looking at some changes in like hormonal regulation of the dopamine transporter and its actual activity states that could dictate some of these effects. And so, I don't know, for me, I think it's a really interesting, first of all, it's an important problem, but I also think biological sex provides a really cool, um, experimental question to also just probe basic things like individual differences in cocaine responses. Yeah, are they predictive of drug seeking and motivation? The individual differences are se is biological sex, and so to me, like I think it's even if you don't care about biological sex, I still think it provides a really cool avenue for looking at how basal or like latent, like you talked about latent sex differences, how sex differences, even things that look the same, can be mediated by different mechanisms in different subpopulations. So the initial push by the NIH to move to balance in male and female subjects was not specifically to seek out studies on sex differences. It was really just to balance the cohorts so yes. that they could say they were covering their bases. Or yes. Something like that. Yes. And I, and I think there's something good. In, it's good and bad, right? Like when you if you want everyone to do sex differences work, you kind of have if people aren't in it, you just get people doing not, they they want work. to find no sex differences, and if you underpower your studies, it's easy to find no difference. Right. Yeah. And so I don't think that's the best way to do it. And so I think what they said is, look, you just have to have both because we were literally not doing studies in females. And so they're like, just do both. Um, but I think that people, I think a lot of people have looked and found interesting things and then started following up on it. So I do think yeah. it's had a huge impact on kind of biomedical science, but we still have a long ways to go. Yeah. I think I think it, you made a really good point. It's astounding how you are developing drugs based on studies only done in males. Of course, you're gonna have drugs that are not effective in females, <laughs> and, and especially neuroscience. I think like it's even more overpowering where like the, just. Uh, the females were not even included, and it was like a very silly reason that uh, it would just increase the variability. Or which the, it doesn't. Which it doesn't. It doesn't. It's, <laughs> it's a misconception, exactly, and so it's 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 ridiculous. And so initially, the behavioral uh, 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 physiologist or scientists they wanted to just you know avoid females because they have these different estrogen phases, and it was kind of known that it will have different effects. But yeah. it's 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 all uh, and, uh, not true, actually. Um, and and males, and actually, this is something that makes me very upset. I think one of the arguments is oh, females have ovarian hormone cycles, so it's too complicated. So exactly. do males. Yeah. <laughs> so do males. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just such, it's, it's like an oddly sexist justification for not doing this. Female hormones are too complicated. Males literally have cyclical cycles as well, and we, don't, we never demanded that we measure them. We never demanded that this be incorporated into our frameworks. And, and again, you do statistics because it accounts for the variance in your studies. And right. it says, hey, could this be explained by this variance? And that you would know if that was influencing it. it it's, it's really amazing too, because so one of the most recent, maybe not the most recent, but a recent study we published, we did um, big data profiling. We did proteomics after drug exposure in males and females. We 
picked a behavioral paradigm where they had the exact same amount of cocaine. They were able to take it. Their behavior looked identical. And it's kind of like we were talking about earlier. We did proteomics in the nucleus accumbens, and we looked at what cocaine was changing. And what we found was there was almost no overlap in what was being changed between mm. males and females. There were like five proteins that were regulated in both sexes by cocaine, and th only three of those were going in the same direction. Wow. And so we started to look out and we looked at what they were. There's a lot of ways that you could change the physiological activity of a cell. It doesn't have to be through the same effector target. And so the behavior was looking similar, but the mechanisms are different. So if you're using drug screening to identify targets that are only in males, you're going to identify targets that will regulate cocaine effects probably. But females, those same targets aren't regulated. And so I think it becomes really important, especially for drug screening studies, if we're actually trying to do translational research, to study these. Their metabolism is different. The body weight is different. Their fat content of their bodies are different. And so things are, they, things are basically, they stick around for different periods of time, kinetics. And so it's, it's and the, really yeah. weird. And the response yeah, at the molecular level is, is, as you said, like kind of non-overlapping. So like, it really makes you wonder like what the downstream consequence of like creating some kind of product that goes to market for humans is going to be. And the, the, like the example that um, I was talking about to somebody earlier is that there's something about like crash test dummies uh, were always exclusively male anatomy up until like 2012. And people were wondering why are women having 47% more like injury in car crashes? It's because the system was designed with the male body. If, if you think of that at the molecular level in the brain, it's going to be even more dire, con like f potentially fatal consequences yeah. for people. And I think that's the thing. And it's even if some of it's just like, dosing differences like they don't adequately balance the populations and then women are having dosing differences there's hormones here's the thing you know we shouldn't just not study females because they have hormones but their ovarian hormones also influence with influence drug metabolism drug effects so there's also all kinds of interactions too between ovarian hormone cycles and drugs and they're bi-directional so people who take a lot of cocaine or especially in our animals they may stop having normal menstrual cycles or normal estrous cycles. And so, but also the cycle stage that animals are in can influence how they process drugs. It can influence how effective drugs are at a specific time. And so these, these, these things are complicated and we actually need people studying them in a deep way. And, and again, like the incentive, you know, needs to be discovery, not just, okay, yeah, we'll include them because the NIH said we had to, and that's where we get funding from. And I think people are starting to recognize that. I mean, I think there's a lot of people having this conversation. It's just, it's not everybody. So, I mean, you mentioned that, like, sort of getting back to um, this idea that dopamine itself is not strictly a reward signal in the brain. Um, you know, the, the, the work that you talked about today kind of challenges the conventional wisdom and makes it... I, you know, you don't even really frame it in a way, as far as I could tell, that um, people are wrong about dopamine. It's just incomplete about dopamine yeah. in some ways. Um, what were some of the first hints, maybe in some of your behavioral experiments or things that you yeah. saw in the literature where you got the sense that, like, reward prediction signals is not, like, an adequate model for dopamine in the brain? Yeah, so one of the things in my career that gets me really excited is, like, really obscure reinforcement theory um so um from like the 60s oh yeah like <laughs> 50s 60s and so something that I've always been interested in um in my life is that you know when we think about what reinforcement is 
and, and this is something that comes into play with drug addiction, is is the probability that something in your environment will make will make you want to do it again. So with drugs, drugs are reinforcing because if you take them, you're more likely in the future to take them again. Food is the reinforcing. And in an animal study, what that means is if an animal presses a lever, gets food, it's more likely to press that lever in the future. And so what's really interesting to me, though, is that depending on how the environment is set up for an animal, a stimulus that we think of as rewarding can also reduce rates of behavior. We call that punishment. And so you have this really, really interesting interplay between whether something is good or bad and what the animal does. So here's, I mean, I'll give you a better example that's easier to comprehend. So if you have an environment where an animal can, or an individual can avoid something bad, they do. If you have an environment where if you do something, something bad happens to you, you don't do that thing. And so in one situation, you do something to avoid something bad. In the other situation, you inhibit doing something to avoid something bad. But the stimulus is still bad in both cases. And so what's really interesting to me is what in the brain is, is helping us navigate an environment where the same bad thing is happening, but our behavioral response in both cases is not the same. And we started doing these behavioral tasks where we had an animal pressing a lever on one lever for food, and they press a ton. And on the other lever, they were pressing to avoid shocks. And they also press a ton. And if dopamine is just the good outcome, in both of those cases, dopamine should go up. Because in one case, it's good that you got food. In the other case, it's good that something bad didn't happen. And that's not really what we saw, but we didn't see it go down either. It was just way more complicated than we thought. And so it kind of made us revisit, we said, okay, well, what is dopamine responding to? And the interesting thing is it went up to shocks. The bad, It went up to the bad event. It went up to food. And it also went up to neutral stimuli that weren't good or bad. They were just new. And so we started to look and we said, dopamine is going up anytime something is new, Novel. important in some way, and it's helping animals navigate an environment, whether the animal needs to increase their behavior or decrease it. And so it became really interesting that we got this dissociation between whether something was good and bad and what the animal did, but dopamine was helping them in all of these cases. And so we started to say, okay, well, dopamine is more of a signal that helps animals navigate environments adaptively than it is signaling that something's good, bad, or they should do something specific. So this is something that you really um, uh, elaborated and gave a lot of evidence on. It was it was amazing in your talk today. Um, I was wondering um, whether you tried applying this model in in a disease state, like for example, in an addicted mice or in a Parkinsonian uh, mice. Um, how would that look? How would the dopamine levels look like? How would the learning look like uh, yeah. uh, in your behavior? Yeah. So we're doing that now, and I think that's what's really exciting. So I think thinking about this, you know, we, I always ask my lab when they start putting their paper together. I'm like why should I care? And not to be disparaging, but like, why should I care? Why should taxpayers who funded this research care? Why does my mom, who's not a PhD, why should she care? And so when you think about what dopamine does, who cares if it's reward or salience? Who cares? Well, we should care because dopamine deficits are a major defining characteristic of addiction. Dopamine levels are down. Schizophrenia, dopamine levels are up. <laughs> ADHD, in some populations, dopamine levels are up. Parkinson's disease, dopamine levels are way down. And so if we want to treat people that have these disorders, we need to know what that dopamine deficit or too much dopamine means for an individual. 
And so if you think of it this way, if dopamine being down is less reward, maybe less reward is good in an addiction, an addiction context because you don't want people to be more rewarded by the drug. But if dopamine is a teaching signal, it helps you learn in every environment. In addiction, if dopamine's down, what it's gonna do is make it so that you cannot unlearn, you can't, there's no new learning. So you cannot learn something new about that drug. You are seeking it. You also can't learn that something else that's new is adaptive. So you can't learn that this is better than the drug because there's not enough dopamine there to do that. You also can't learn that there's a bad consequence of you taking this drug. So essentially what happens is you're kind of stuck in that state. And so thinking about how we would treat this, our approach would be almost opposite if dopamine was a reward versus a salience kind of hmm. helping animal learn signal. And so, you know, when, when I talk about it, you're probably like, wow, this is so nuanced. Why do we care? The reason we care is because this literally would shape how we intervene on individuals across almost every psychiatric disease. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so I've, I've trained a bunch of animals to do discrimination tasks and that sort of thing. And I've, I've been like, incredibly frustrated sometimes when the animal can't learn a new contingency. So this idea of learning new things in the context of addiction, I mean, obviously it carries a lot more importance than like training a tree shrew to see horizontal <laughs> versus vertical grading, but like flexibility in learning and being able to unlearn things is dopamine playing the same role at all times in all these different scenarios. Like, uh, you know, if you need to learn a different set of behavioral strategies to get out of addiction you're saying like if it's a saliency signal you need to be able to be more receptive to teaching signals you need more dopamine right what's the way to get more dopamine in without well that's drugs the hard part that the are thing addictive? is we need drugs but the problem is we need drugs that aren't activating these systems so you know there's a lot of ways to circumvent dopamine system you could give agonists so things that activate dopamine receptors directly but the problem is we give those to people with parkinson's they're called d1 receptor agonists and they also have abuse potential and so you know when you start to think of drugs that are going to increase dopamine function you're in a little kind of slippery slope because most drugs that that act on dopamine systems also have abuse potential. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, we need to find ways where we can refine dopamine synthesis, where we can refine signaling in a way that's not directly activating the receptor. And so I think there's kind of some new hot areas of research coming up on this. I think people are starting to recognize that immune signaling um, is actually something that in and of itself, animals won't self-administer just immune cytokines. But they can enhance dopamine release and cognitive flexibility and function. A lot of them are in trials for Alzheimer's disease, um, for, schizo for schizophrenia, I think, definitely for depression. Um, and they're starting to do some of it for addiction. And so things that are maybe modulatory in nature that are actually hormonal type peripheral signaling. You know, I know a lot of people are looking at the microbiome. So the microbiome is really interesting because microbiome produces factors that are necessary for a lot of enzymes in our brain. So things like acetate, butyrate, these are things that could be dietary supplements, but they're really important for rewiring our brains. So epigenetics is a way that we can change gene expression through kind of changing the conformation of DNA and how it's stored. And so acetate, butyrate, these things that are produced by the microbiome actually can be incorporated into 
histones in the brain. And so I think when you start to think of, of ways that we can increase plasticity in plastic windows without directly giving a drug that increases dopamine, I think those are gonna be the ways, because essentially what you're doing is you're supplementing something the brain needs and it can use when there's something important, not giving the signal itself. And so I think it's, it's hard, but I think we're starting to go in a direction where some of that stuff is tractable now and will be kind of, I think, the next thing that's coming down the pipeline translationally. So if I understand correctly, do you think that these um, different systems, the, the immune uh, system that you mentioned, um, they are f modulating the dopaminergic system or they are affecting the downstream systems in combination with dopamine? And so They're probably doing both. Okay. So, so, so we did a bunch of work with a collaborator that I have. At, he just moved to Wake Forest, so his name's Drew Corrali. So he, when I was in my postdoc, we were working together and he did this um, big screen of immune cytokines. And he identified um, this target called GCSF. It's called granulocyte colony stimulating factor. And so we've been doing work on this for a long time. You can give it to animals systemically and it increases dopamine release. So it doesn't just increase how much dopamine is there. It increases how much is released when something happens. And so you're not just like increasing dopamine non-specifically. What you're doing is you're tuning the system so when there is an important stimulus, now there's more release. And so it's it's a really kind of cool target. It can it can facilitate extinction of drug-associated memories. It can modulate how much cocaine animals take. It can modulate drug seeking. And so I think there's a lot of stuff there. And he has a lot of other work looking at kind of similar kind of mechanisms where when you supplement drinking water with some of these um, metabolic products, you can start to get differences in drug-associated behaviors, that, but not differences in baseline behavior. Um, which is really hard to do without something that's just like an like some product for an enzyme or something or these cytokine signaling mechanisms. On a similar note, um, you mentioned in your talk um, about the, the release of dopamine also during latent inhibition. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because um, I think in, an, in a normal um, physiological context, when the animal is running in the wild, for example, um, you would want to have dopamine uh, or you would have dopamine release when you want to attend to a particular novel object, novel yeah. uh, object, but you also want to inhibit like the other stuff yeah. at the same time. So how do these uh, two different uh, functions like are are uh, mediated by dopamine, which is also released around the same time, right? Is it different subpopulations? Is it affecting different subpopulations? I think it's affecting general just attention, like attention in an environment. So okay. for example, like. More, it's more like when I say attention, more like exploration. So essentially, if an environment is new and you haven't seen anything, maybe there's more dopamine and that helps you kind of look around, navigate the environment. Where when there's stuff you've seen a lot, you don't want to do that as much because you need to ignore, to be, for, to be able to learn, right? If you processed every single thing that you ever saw, and this is actually a really big problem with schizophrenia, one of the issues isn't, is that they, there's too much stuff yeah. coming in, right? Adaptive learning requires you to take the important things in, but block out the irrelevant things. And so dopamine is really important for guiding exploration environment that's novel, but also starting to reduce that when you already have experienced things and they are unimportant. And so essentially we call this latent inhibition. It's when you're exposed to something that at first is novel, but over time you learn it's irrelevant. You learn that to ignore it, it's attentional. And so dopamine is really important to this because it guides this idea that it kind of guides this attention towards important novel things. And then when you learn that they're just not something you need to attend to, dopamine goes down. If you look at this novel thing and you say, oh no, that is something I should pay attention to, then dopamine remains up. 
And so it's it's just helping guide how we navigate an environment. But there's also other systems in the brain, right? You were talking about the hippocampus. Like you also have memory systems. You also have cognitive kind of decision-making systems. And I think when you're thinking about these limbic structures, they're way more like, is this important? Yes or no? And there are these quick transient decisions that are, no, great. I habituated to it really fast. Now I can do something else. Yeah, I guess like um, from a, my sort of layperson understanding, you have the dopamine system, which is signaling the importance of a lot of things, but then downstream from that, there's the sort of executive functions that are yeah. bootstrapped on top of that. So, um, And those things are feeding back on the dopamine system too. So the dopamine system regulates all those things, but then they receive, they project back <laughs> to the dopamine system to then kind of, you know, it could be a positive or a negative feedback, right? It could be, oh yeah, this is important. Do it more, more dopamine. Or they can come back and say, okay, it's not really important. Let's inhibit that. And there's lots of kind of interesting ways to inhibit dopamine release. There's a lot of cool, dopamine's so cool. It's regulated <laughs> everywhere. It's regulated by every system in the brain. It's the, it's, there's a lot of ways that that can tie in that are complicated, but. I learned something. So one thing I hate yeah. doing on this podcast that I am forced to do all the time is reveal stuff that maybe I should have known, but I didn't know. But um, <laughs> when I found out today that dopamine release can be regulated by acetylcholine in the absence of spiking activity yeah. in dopamine neurons, that was really cool to me. I like learning new yeah. things, um, even if it means I, I was dumb beforehand. But um, one of the things, you know, we're sort of, we're not totally out of time, but... Um, yeah you know, it'd be cool to talk a little bit about some of the techniques you're using for this stuff. Yes. Like, um, how are you observing dopamine release, for instance, oh, and yeah. how does it circumvent traditional techniques for recording dopamine activity? Like, oh, I teach cyclic classes on this. I could do stuff. this all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so back in the day, so the early days, the way that you recorded dopamine was through this probe. You'd put a probe in the brain and it basically was just like a hole and you would put liquid in and then liquid would come out because you can only put so much liquid in. So essentially what would happen is you put artificial brain fluid, so artificial cerebrospinal fluid into the brain, and you would collect what came out. And what would happen is what was in the brain would diffuse into your cerebrospinal fluid that you put in that had nothing in it. And then you would run it on a, what's called an HPLC, and you would be able to measure all of these things in the brain, norepinephrine, dopamine, peptide, everything, whatever you want, um, depending on how you do it. But microdialysis. Microdialysis. Right, yeah. And so one of the things that's that's cool about it is it has really, really high um, selectivity for species. So you can dissociate all these species. You know what they are. You know how much there is there. The problem is it's really slow. So you get 20-minute collections. There's new ways to do it where you get a minute. But you're still talking about a minute. A minute in an animal's life or our life is really long. Yeah. And so then in the 80s, um, they came out, um, they, Mark Whiteman, so I'm my, my, my grad advisor was his student, which is, so I'm a descendant of him. So they came out with what's called fast scan cyclic voltammetry, which is an analytical tool, which is much faster. So you're getting, you know, 10 hertz. So 10 times a second, you can get a, a collection. And the, basically the way it works is that you are oxidizing and reducing dopamine in the brain. So it's, it's, it's hardcore chemistry. It's like mostly chemists that do this. And then like a few biologists and it allows you to see these really rapid signals, um, which is awesome. But it's also an electrical recording technique. So the way you do it is by recording electrons, you're using electrical system. And so anytime in an animal, you want to record from an electrical system, but you want to give a foot shock, for example, it interferes. You can't, record, yeah. you can't record during that period. And so part of the reason that we thought dopamine was reward is because the only thing we could record was during rewards because right. you couldn't use a lot That's of the, crazy. the stimuli. 
So then in the last couple years, probably like five years, they've started to come out with the, the, these optical biosensors. And so what they are is they take a dopamine receptor and they basically mutate it so it doesn't signal anymore, but they attach it to a GFP. And what happens is when dopamine binds, the receptor fluoresces, and when dopamine's not there, it doesn't. And so you can get these really temporally quick fluorescent signals that fluctuate really fast over time. You could do this in a brain slice, you can do this in a cell, and you can do this in awake and behaving animals. Um, there's a lot of really great things about the tool. I mean, still, the pro there's good and bad for every technique. I think this is something, when new techniques come out, everyone gets amped. They're like, new technique, it has no problems. That doesn't exist. So I still do voltammetry a ton in my lab and actually microdialysis too, because if I want to use pharmacological agents, let's say I want to give a D1 receptor drug. It's going to bind, it's to, gonna the bind to the sensor. Thing, right? yeah. Yeah. Okay, well. It's going to bind to the sensor and it's going to cause fluorescence in the sensor itself. So it becomes a really large problem for me. So if I want to do that, I use voltammetry because I know it does not interfere with the sensor. But if I want to do other things that I couldn't do with voltammetry, I use a sensor. The other great thing about these sensors is they have way better signal to noise than most others, which means that we can get way better signals. We don't have to average over lots of trials. And actually the paper that we have coming out really soon, without the sensor, we wouldn't have observed what we observed because what we were looking at was single trial learning. And we were looking at really fast signals that, that went away within three or four trials. So with previous tools, we didn't have the, the kind of resolution to be able to identify these things. So a lot of what we're seeing now isn't the data or the data. We're seeing the same thing other people were seeing, but we have resolution we didn't have before. And so there's all kinds of cool tools now with these, these sensors. There's calcium sensors, there are voltage sensors, there's acetylcholine. They're coming out with peptide sensors for things like dynorphin, for um, endocannabinoids. And so I think like it's really neat all of the things you can do with these optical tools that are going to kind of bring us closer to these kind of really deep questions that we have. You can do them anywhere. So I'm excited about kind of the technology and where it's going, but never forget that technology is only as good as the people who are asking questions. Asking the questions. Um, exactly. You know, one thing, so this, um, I think it was a 2021 current biology paper, like the one that's like, you know, challenging the established yeah. models for um, dopamine and stuff. It's like real tour de force came out in the pandemic. <laughs> and uh, so you started your lab like five years yeah, ago? Yeah, about five years, 2017. So what is it like just from the perspective of a, you know, uh, early tenure track professor who's has like everything shut down in the middle of getting things going? Like I am the worst because I'm fine. I feel bad sometimes because I did, I was okay. Um, I think it's terrible for most people. I think it's really bad for most people. I think that we had, a lot of things happened at once. You had COVID that shut things down. Vanderbilt was is small, so we were able to not have to get rid of animal colonies. And so we kind of kept, we, we shut down, but it wasn't as bad as some other places. Um, you know, I do a lot of social media stuff because I, I like to do science outreach. And I think what comes with that is that I'm like around on the internet when I'm not around. And so I think for some of the things that I did, that was probably helpful for me in my lab. Um, supply chain stuff hit after that. And so yeah. I think people, so I started in 2017. So when pandemic started like 2019, we had two years of data 
collection, which was like, it meant that like, yeah, we submitted some stuff that maybe we would have worked on longer, but it definitely was kind of a good thing for me to say, we need to get this out. Yeah. Now other people, because a lot of people around me started in 2019. I think that's a totally different story. It was really hard to get up and running. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what the NAH does for this, because I think one thing they've kind of done is said, oh, well, we're back up and running now. The problem is it disproportionately affected new PIs. And so they didn't have data. If you had kids, like oh I don't God. have kids. So like I'm sitting at home by myself writing and watching TV and, and people are literally, yeah, they don't have childcare. And I, I think that we've really done a disservice by pretending that now that, it's all normal. I mean, it's not, it's not over, but like now that we have started functioning in some way that we're in the clear, because I don't think we're going to see the effects of all of that until two or three years from now. Because I think that's when you're going to start seeing people that are trying to get funding that had a hard time hiring people. Like if you couldn't hire people, what do you do? So wh what do you think, what are some of the structures you would want to see in place or policies adopted that could help, uh, you know, start, especially people at the startup stage um, who've lost those two years? Are, are we talking about like extensions on grants and renewals? I think cost extensions like on grants, cost extensions, not actual, just like, oh, we'll give you 10 more years to try to figure this out. Um, I think funding mechanisms, the NIH has started doing this a little bit because they've come up with like the CATS Investigator Award. So if you're a young person starting out, these are RO1 applications that are not allowed to have preliminary data. You can use hmm. published figures and you can use things that are online, but you can't have preliminary data, which I think is really important because it puts you in a pool with other people who also can't have preliminary data. Because if you do this thing where you say, you don't have to, but other people do. The yeah. study section looks and says, well, this other person does. Right. And some of those people have been assistant professors for 10 years, which is a very different thing than someone who's two years in. And so I think unless you set rules that basically protect those people in these different calls, if you, ha I think institutions, why institutions can support people, salary coverage, things like that, extending timelines for COVID, at first, when people said, oh, we'll give you another year or two for tenure, that's horrible. What, what you're doing is you're not promoting people. You're not paying them more for that period of right. time. And so at first, it was like, oh, that's so nice. But we should be changing our expectations for tenure so that we're still promoting people. Yeah. They're still getting raises. But we're thinking about it differently given how they've done in this landscape. And, and, it's, and again, it's, it's not fair. Like, you know, I have been okay, but it's because I don't have kids. And so it's not fair to say, well, there's a few people who this didn't affect as badly, therefore everyone was fine. Because it's just, then you create a situation where only women without kids or men who have a substantial family support get promoted to the next step, which we already have a disparity issue there. So I think that it's just amplifying these equity issues that we have if people don't come in and change expectations or give more support to people. Right, there's gonna be specific groups of people that are going to be demographically more affected by it and feel the brunt of that if we don't basically accommodate that and i mean some of it is timing some of it is like yeah i started my 11 2019 but some of it is also just like like you said uh your male colleague who doesn't have kids can churn through a bunch of stuff and stay in the lab until midnight and if i have two kids at home it's pretty difficult to yeah, do exactly so. and when there's childcare stuff and kids are going back to school but everybody's getting sick and so it's even when they do go back to school you can't it's, it's just, it's really hard. And I, and I know that there's not, you know, it's easy to criticize 
and say, oh, they're doing it wrong. What would you do right? It's, I think that it is hard to solve this problem, but I think that the conversation should be less about saying, we'll give you an extra two or three years to figure it out and more about how do we help you stay on track. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, that's a good point. In some ways, it seems like it kind of like highlights existing issues that like oh yeah it just sort of exacerbates them and well and i think what happens here is we also have a lot going on in the world right now and you know there's a lot of data that's coming out on on who is providing emotional support to students on credit that's being given to women on publications and so you have a system that already disproportionately requests that women let okay let's say you have two women in your department but you need equity on a bunch of committees how do you do that? Oh, you just have the two women serve on every committee, right? And so the problem that you have is that there's a disproportional amount of service already being done by certain individuals, and they're almost always right. underrepresented groups of people. And so those people are already taxed. There's then these effects of COVID. And so you essentially have a disparity where people who aren't taxed or people who, again, don't have kids are like just business as usual. So essentially, unless you want a system in five years that's all one type of person, you need to change something. The equity on committees thing, that blows my mind. Like, because it seems like it's like, okay, we're doing that, we're putting this in place for good reasons. And then in the end, it's actually costing the yes. people that it's impacting more than anything. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm rude. So I just show up and say like, no, or I'll be like, I'm happy to be compensated for my time. Or, you know, I say, They'll be like, we need a woman on this committee. I say, oh, well, it, this is a great opportunity for hire, us to hire another one. Hire some one. more people. <laughs> and so I think that, like, but, like, my institution is really great because they 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 have, they put their money where their mouth is. They listen. They want to hear these, like, how can we fix this? And so when I say things like that, the feedback's not like, oh, my gosh, she's difficult. It's like, okay, how do we make this happen? And so it's great. But not everyone's in that position. Not everyone's in that position. And it's, and it's really difficult. And especially when you start bringing in, you know, minoritized individuals into departments where students make up are the the student population is is diverse, but the faculty population isn't. Well, what happens? That one individual mentors all of the students. And it's 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 somewhat unavoidable because those individuals often want to mentor those students because they look like them and they want to help them, but how do we support them, right? Right. How do you avoid a situation where your white male colleague just gets to make the decision whether they just do science or not. And then your other colleagues, if they want to set boundaries, they feel like they're letting students drop off the face of the earth. Now I have some amazing male colleagues in my life that see this happening and they say, how can I help? They make sure they actively participate. They'll, they let me say, Oh, I can't do this, but how about you ask this guy? And they're happy to kind of take some of that burden off of me. And so I think another step is, is, men looking around and saying, what can I do? And what can I actively do to take the burden off of some of these? Maybe I don't see the burden. Can I listen? How do I do this? And so I think there are people starting to have these conversations and wanting to listen. So this isn't yeah. like a us versus And I think thing. it's 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 just uh, the, the conversations need to happen, right? We cannot... Um, uh, I think I think that's that's the solution at the end of the day. When more and more people uh, talk about it or are becoming aware about this situation and this disparity that you're mentioning, I think that's very important. Um, uh, even even we didn't know some of these things, right, Joe? Um, well, you wouldn't. Why would? And, yeah. and I think that's the thing, right? Is it like you don't ex you don't experience them, so maybe you don't know that your female colleague next door is spending four hours of her day consoling <laughs> students who oh, are having yeah. a hard time because you wouldn't see. 
And so I think when we start to have these conversations, now you have more open eyes to say, is my colleague doing this? How do I how do I become a participant in this so that I can help students too? And I, I do think people want to do it. So I don't think it's something where, you know, we're bringing this up and saying there's a moral failing by people. I think people just don't know. And I think these conversations help. Yeah, wow, I, I mean, I think like awareness that there is this burden that needs to be shared and go around, like yeah. that's, that's a good first step. I mean, uh, it's kind of just, it's like being a good roommate. It's like if, if there's the one roommate who is making the house run like you know all the time take notice and chip in like i mean yeah it's yeah. maybe a bad analogy but like i think you know. it's the same kind of idea though is it like you know in a department like we're all working together and the better it does and the less burden there is on any one person the better we all do right like for me it might be a very small amount of my time to take two minutes from this person and then you take two minutes from that same person but if we all chip in, it's really a minimal amount of effort on our part yeah. that makes it a better place for literally everybody. And so I think, you know, I think places are starting to have these conversations. And I think that's something that that, that students and postdocs and junior faculty are starting to ask for when they look at faculty positions, right? Yeah. They show up and they say, what are you doing to promote equity? And the institutions that are like nothing, I think people start to say, okay, well, I can choose between these two places, this place that is acknowledging they're not perfect. We're not yelling at them. Everybody's not perfect. And they're putting like things, just put money on it. Like you, that's not <laughs> the only thing, right? You can't throw money at it and bring people into a bad environment, but throwing money at it's a good first start. Like if you're going to bring in um, somebody who is from an underrepresented group into your department and you know, because you listen that they are going to be burdened the NIH rate for grants for black PIs, they have to submit, I think it's like nine times as many grants to get to the same funding percentage. Oh so if gosh. you know you're bringing somebody in, that the probability of them getting a grant at NIH is going to take them longer, right? Nine rounds is way more years. Yeah. Give them extra money. Give them extra time on their startup, right? Like these things are actually things that you can do to say, Hey, how can we mitigate this burden that you're up against so that you have the space to be successful, right? Like, if you're not going to invest in the people you're hiring, why are you hiring them? And I think people are going in the job market and they're saying, this is what, what are you going to do to make sure that these biases that we know exist don't affect me as negatively? And I think the good institutions are saying, what can we do? Tell us, we're going to figure it out. And then the other institutions are like, tough. And you know what? Then people don't go there. It's, it's almost a metaphor for the research, for the for the um, differences in the brain. It's like there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to any given cohort of yeah. people. And so you have to be aware of the nuance at all levels, not just not just at the molecular level in the brain, but at the hiring level at the university. So yeah, it's and like, it's, it's hard, right? Because there's just, I know there's there's all kinds of caps on things, state, public school, there, there, there are things, right? But there's, but we have to try something. And I think a first step, I mean, especially if you're young and you want to start to see this, I mean, there's lots of scientists having these conversations on Twitter. Um, I'm a little old, so like I'm, I am on TikTok, but I don't do it that much, but I'm sure that that exists there. But you see these conversations, right? And I think it's a good way to follow people that don't look like you, that don't come from your background and hear them tweet about their experiences, right? And I think then it allows you, if you're open to say, oh, I did not know that happened. Wow it's that much harder to get grants. What can I do if I'm on study section to make sure these biases don't go through to the review? What can I do in my department to make sure that that 
burden is not placed on this person. And so I think it's just about joining in on the conversation, even if you're just like lurking and listening to what's going on. I think it really can open your eyes to quite a bit. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you for articulating all these yeah. ideas so well, because it's, it's not something we get to the chance to talk up to a lot uh, on the show, but um, it's definitely important. And um, so interesting that I've, I, I, I'm going to get in trouble for not bringing you to your next meeting <laughs> because we've, we've run over time. But, Should we um, end on a dopamine note and um, maybe just ask one last question? Yeah, go for it. Um, I just wanted to know what now for your lab? What are some early early career uh, early phase projects that you're working on that you're excited about and you can share with us? Uh, so the thing I'm most excited about right now, <laughs> I shouldn't tell people what I'm going to anymore. We'll publish it eventually. Who cares? Um, we're looking at some cool stuff, looking at hormonal regulation of nicotinic receptors, and so we have some cool data showing that estradiol is actually interacting with nicotinic acetylcholine receptors to change the way dopamine is released in males and females. And so essentially, um, estradiol is really cool. It, it, what it can do is it can cause so much potentiation of currents through this receptor that it leads to desensitization. So in intact females, they're hypofunctional because they were basically driven so much they don't work anymore. And so what this does, because these receptors, they do something really weird to dopamine terminals. They're, called, they're what we call a low-pass filter. They potentiate lower currents at the expense of higher frequency events. What it does, because you've taken this offline, is it puts female dopamine responses like through the roof. They're hmm. responding way more to stimulating their environment. And so I think it's a really kind of cool thing because if you think about hormones and what they do, you usually think about them acting on hormone receptors. But the fact that you have a hormone that's regulating an ion channel that is found throughout the brain means that we have a kind of like almost unstudied area of work. What are hormones doing to these systems that are changing the way information is processed? So anyway, that's my next like exciting thing. That's but, awesome. And um, you mentioned social media. I'm sure everybody who's on neuroscience Twitter is already following you, but it's it's the Aaron Calipari. It's the Aaron Calipari, which, by the way, I'm like, uh, it was like a joke about the Ohio, the Ohio State, State University. University, but now they just trademark the, so I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use that. It's anymore. a trademark violation now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I'm there. The Calipari Lab is my lab one. So. Well, Dr. Calipari, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation, and uh, we look forward to seeing what's next for you. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This was awesome. Take care. Thanks. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast.